Good morning, church. Thank you for being with us this morning. I wanted to pause at the beginning of my sermon and offer a prayer for Amand Arbery and his family and those who have been part of that situation, which unfortunately seems to be pretty terrible. We pray against those who are creating injustice in our world. And I know for me, one of the things that is a great blessing in our church is the diversity that we have here. And I learn so much from people who are way different than me. And I always cherish that as a major part of the blessing of our church and our ministry. So please join us in 30 seconds of silence and please lift up your hearts and pray about this situation. And then I'll lead us in a prayer after that. God, it's in moments like these that we realize how far we have yet to come. We lift up the Arbery family. We lift up all those involved in that situation. We pray that justice would be served. It makes me sad to think about the brokenness that exists in our world. I pray that all of us would be part of the solution, that we would look for ways that we could be part of bringing your kingdom more here, especially as it comes to racial reconciliation in our communities and even within our own hearts. May we break down the walls that exist between us and unfortunately still do. Father, guide us as we try more and more to be your people and to see the world and see others through your eyes. Father, we pray over this situation and all those that are involved and may we again be part of the solution. Your son Jesus, in my prayer. Amen. I also want to give a happy Mother's Day to all the moms who might be watching this, especially happy Mother's Day to my mom, Anita, who has taught me some wonderful things. I'm so thankful for her ministry to me in my life and my wonderful wife, Mandy. It's been an honor to watch her as a mother. It's just a great joy to see how much love she has for our children. So thank you to two of the best moms that I know. We're finishing up a series that we've been doing for the last several weeks called Quarantine Church, where we're looking at four letters that Paul writes to New Testament, church, New Testament churches and one individual as he is in house arrest, or you might call it quarantine. And there's a lot that Paul teaches us from these letters, and I hope that you go back and read these. I've been trying to do my best to preach through some of them, and it's hard. Philemon is a little bit easier because it's just one chapter. But Philippians, which we're looking at today, Colossians and Ephesians, there is so much you could learn from Paul. So my hope is that you maybe pick one of these books and dive into it uh, for the next year, perhaps, and just let Paul speak to you as he finds himself not able to move around as he would normally like to. But still, he has unbelievable reflections on God and who God is. And as I said in the sermon in Colossians, for him, God gets bigger during this season. That's something I hope we all can learn and walk away with in our lives. In the book of Philippians, there's a lot that I could preach from. But one thing that Paul mentions at the end of his book is he says, I have found the mega mystery, the mega mystery of what a life best lived looks like. Now imagine if 
a book like that was released. Imagine if Paul released this book and we had bookstores still. We would all stand in line waiting for this book to come out. It would be excitement. Everybody would be pumped about what was going on and Paul's mega mystery is coming out. We still have books that are released today about this. Like, this is the secret. This is what a good life looks like. Paul says, this is what the mega mystery is. And I'll tell you about it in a little bit. But first, I want to talk about some other things before we get there. Several years ago, I was visiting one of the members of our church who lived in a nursing home, which hopefully I'll be able to do again relatively soon. It's a great blessing in my life to spend time with some of our older members and to learn from their wisdom and just to be in their presence. I was in this nursing home and a lady saw me and we joined each other on the elevator and she said to me, I know you from somewhere. And as we were going up, I said, nope, I don't really know you. I don't think, sorry. I'm not sure where you know me from. And she said, no, I definitely know you from somewhere. And I said, uh, well, I'm a pastor, so maybe we met at church one time. And she said, no, I know where it is. You're on TV. And I said, really? I, I'm not on TV. I haven't been on TV since fourth grade in a math video. And she said, no, 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 you're on TV. You're on that show, New Girl. You're Nick from New Girl. And here's a picture of Nick from New Girl, and I'm certainly not Nick from New Girl. She wouldn't drop it. I almost pulled out my ID to show her definitively that I was not Nick from New Girl, but finally I think she believed me. And I remember walking away from that conversation thinking, wow, if I looked like Nick from New Girl, then I think I would have dated more than I actually did. And you can put in the comments yay or nay whether you actually see the resemblance or not. I'm in the nay category. But I remember after she told me that, I wasn't familiar with the show or who the actor was. So the first thing I did after we left each other was I looked up Nick from New Girl, and I thought, wow, that's quite the compliment. And i got to be honest with you, as you think about your life and I think about my life, there's so many ways that we are constantly comparing ourselves to each other, where we are looking to the right and to the left and thinking, okay, how do I get my value? Where is it that I get my worth? Am I measuring up? Pastor Andy Stanley says that we all live in the land of Ur. We're okay with people being reasonably successful, as long as we're a little bit more Ur than them. Maybe it's skinnier or prettier or talenteder or richer. We're happy with them being pretty successful, but we all want to have just a little bit more Ur. Paul would invite us to think about that there's no win in comparison. In fact, I think the Old Testament teaches the same thing. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, as he reflects on his life and thinks about the different meaningless things that he points out in this very interesting book, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4, he says this, and I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I looked out, Solomon says, and I saw all this stuff. People are envying each other, and this is meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. I've heard it said before that you can't break any of the other Ten Commandments without first breaking the tenth one that you can't covet. We spend so much time looking to the right and to the left to think about what it is that makes us special or makes us unique and makes us stand out. There's no win in comparison. It's truly a chasing after the wind. Paul knows that, and he writes this to a church in Philippi, 
a church that was a Roman colony. Roman citizenship was very important in that time and place. And that's what makes Philippians chapter 3 when Paul says that we are citizens of heaven, a very significant thing because he's saying you are not a Roman citizen first and foremost. You are a citizen of heaven. He's inviting them into this new reality. But they were Roman citizens, very much in a Roman place. And in Rome, the thing that was most important was honor. That was what you lived your entire life to try and seek. You wanted to be considered an honorable person. Forty years before the life and ministry of Jesus, Cicero, who's a Roman historian, says this, by nature we yearn and hunger for honor. And I think that's really interesting because the assumption is just the way that their culture was set up. He says it's human nature, not this is how we've set this up or this is the way that our society is. By human nature, we yearn and hunger for honor. And once we have glimpsed, as it were, some part of its radiance. There's nothing we're not prepared to bear to suffer it in order to secure it. Cicero says that once we have just a little bit of a taste of honor, there's nothing that we wouldn't do to continue to have it. Now for you, it might not be honor that is all that important, but where would you put something in there? Perhaps not honor, perhaps it's something else. What would you say is the thing that gets you up in the morning at times and sometimes leads you to places that you wouldn't necessarily want to go. Honor was the thing in that time and in that place. There was a historian named Josephus, who a New Testament author, David Garland, writes about his biography. Josephus is right after the ministry of Jesus, and he writes his own biography. And Garland describes it like this. He gives a brief rundown of his genealogy to identify himself as descending from a noble family. He comes from a priestly descent, those considered to be of the highest rank. He also claims royal lineage on his mother's side. So the beginning of this book about himself, Josephus is just claiming anything possibly important, significant, or royal about him. Even like his aunt's third cousin's sister. Like he's trying to pull anything out and that's how he begins his biography. And we would look at that and say, that's arrogant and please don't lead with that stuff. But I think that's because we have learned from the life and teachings of Jesus and then the writings of Paul. Because as Josephus opens up this biography about himself. It's almost like he's saying, I have many leather-bound books and my apartment smells of rich mahogany. We don't like people who do that. But in that time, honor was so important and significant that people were willing to do anything to get it. In fact, there's another historian who writes a book named Valerius Maximus. And in this book, which is about 100 pages, it's titled this, which is a real mouthful, of persons born in the lowliest station who tried by falsehood to thrust themselves into illustrious families. You think that an editor perhaps would say, shorten that title a little bit, but it tells you without reading it what the book is about. And there are several examples of all these people who tried to get themselves into different positions because they went to a different place and they lied about who it was that they were. There's one story in there about a guy who was a horse doctor, and that was the lowest of the low. Vets in our society are are more important. We love animals more than they did in that time in that place. But if you weren't able to be a doctor for humans and you were working to try and keep animals well, animals were considered to be dirty, and that's lowly work. So this horse doctor in one city goes to another place, and he tries to pretend that he's from this very prestigious royal family, Maximus tells us. And after a while, he's found out. 
then it's discovered that he isn't who he says he is. He's just a horse doctor. And he's banished from Italy for it. Very much in Roman society, everyone was competing for honor. Jesus even tells stories about if you go to a party, don't go and sit in the place that you think is most important. And you would go to these parties and you would be sitting according to your rank, who it is that is the most important person who is coming to your party. And Jesus says what you should do, even if you know that you're the most important person going to that party, go and sit in the lowliest place. So if at that party someone says, hey, you shouldn't be sitting there. Come forward and come sit up here. Then you're going to be made to look a whole lot better than the person who's sitting a few seats above his or her rank and then has to be told, hey, sorry about that. You need to move five rows to your right. Imagine living in a world where at a party you had to rank your friends. That's what it was like. And in a world like that. Paul writes this, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Don't write a biography about yourself. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to the, your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in a place where horse doctors are trying their best to pretend that they're prestigious people, Paul reminds this church to live into a different reality. Because this is what Jesus was like. So do nothing out of selfish ambition or out of vain conceit. And some people think that Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 is a hymn that the early, the early Christians sang together. Paul is reminding them of this song. This is what we get together and sing, guys. This is what this is about. Like, remember this. This is who you are in Jesus. And he uses this word that's a fantastic word in the Greek that says he didn't use his power to grab for everything. Basically, he lived with open hands. He didn't seize everything that he possibly could. He didn't squeeze everything out of his talent or use everything that he possibly could to get something out of the day. Instead, Jesus lived with open hands. I think we could learn something from that. Because I think so often we're grasping for stuff. And we don't even really know what it is. We're doing all this stuff and we're keeping ourselves super busy. Doesn't really seem all that satisfying. This season of life has been super strange and I hope it's maybe the weirdest season of my life that I ever experienced. 
But I do think even though it's been hard and way harder for a lot of people than it is for me, I do think we learn something from being limited. Perhaps you've been limited in the fact that suddenly you just can't do as much work as you used to. You're so tired, and if you have to do one more Zoom call, you're going to throw your computer out of the room. We're spending time in smaller spaces. I'm sure all of us are less productive than we used to be. Perhaps you lost your job. Perhaps you're worried about your health. You're coming a bit to the end of yourself. What Paul says here is that Jesus limited himself. And actually, that was good news for everyone. That he could have used all of his power to try and grab for glory to make all this happen, but instead, he lived with open hands. And we see that Jesus is loved. And that Jesus is the ultimate example of love. Even as he embraces limits. What is it, perhaps, out of this season that you are going to say, I'm going to keep that limit in my life because it's been a blessing to me? Because limits, I think, help us actually define what love is. When you get married to somebody, what you're saying is, I am limited to you. Limits reveal love in a lot of ways. And as we realize some of the limits that we all collectively have, may we hear these words from Paul that say, yeah, Jesus was limited too. He could have used all of his power to grab after all this stuff, to do all of these things, but Jesus was limited too. How is it or where is it that you get your worth from? I think for some of us, we realize that we need to redefine these things and look at them completely differently. Oftentimes we're looking to the right and to the left. There's the old phrase that actually sounds pretty quaint now, keeping up with the Joneses. Because it used to be that there was a Jones family in your neighborhood who was tough to compete with. And they brought their new stuff around and you always say, oh, those Joneses, they have more than I do. The problem is today, We don't just keep up with our neighbors. We keep up with every Jones we've ever known. Even if it's Joneses that we haven't seen in 15 years. It's so easy, especially with social media, just constantly look to the right and to the left and think about how am I measuring up? And sometimes to feel, oh, you know, I'm looking a little better than that person. I'm looking a little bit worse than that one. And the major issue is that we are comparing ourselves to everyone else's highlight reels. At the end of the day, Paul says, would you recognize that through limits, love is best given? There's a man who's a professor of psychology at the University of Illinois named Ed Diener. And he says, he actually calls himself, because he's researched happiness for so long, he calls himself Dr. Happiness, which is an amazing name. And I'm sure you're all thinking, wow, I wish I would have come up with calling myself Dr. Happiness. But in one of his papers about what it looks like to achieve happiness in your life, he says, materialism is toxic for happiness. Because if you live your life just trying to accumulate whatever it happens to be, you'll find out. Ultimately, it's not 
going to satisfy you. We follow a Savior who limited himself, who said, yes, I have the attributes of God. I have the power and the glory of God, but I'm not going to use that to try and just accumulate more and more stuff. I instead am going to humble myself to death, even death on a cross. Would you be willing to let your mindset be the same mind as Christ Jesus? That doesn't mean that you don't work hard. That doesn't mean that you don't give your best effort because the world needs your talents and your gifts. But at the end of the day, could you not try to find your value in your work by looking to the right, to the left, but to the life and example of Jesus? who said, sure, I could be more powerful if I wanted to. I could accumulate all this stuff, but I choose to limit myself for the good of the world. Paul lets us in on the mega mystery in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. He says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret, and that's the word right there, of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul says, let me tell you about the mega mystery, the secret. This is the only place in the New Testament this word is used. In fact, it was a word that was used in pagan temples and at cults to try and get new people attracted to you. Kind of like some of the things that we'll see today. You know, bring five friends and you can start to learn. Start on the new pathway. We'll give you this little bit of information. And Paul says, the mega mystery that all these cults, all these places are talking about, let me tell you what it actually is. It's contentment. It's being willing to look at your life and at times to say, yep, this is enough. This is enough. Something that a friend of mine in ministry taught me to say, which has been a huge blessing in my life. There are challenges with with my job and with my life, but to say almost every day, I can't believe I get to live this life. I can't believe I get to do this job. And I know for some of you, you've lost work perhaps. You're in a really difficult situation with that. But could you say, I can't believe I get to live this life. It's hard. There are blessings even in the midst of hard circumstances. Paul says the mega mystery is to look at your life and to say, yep, this is enough. The Spirit of God can be enough for me. G.K. Chesterton says it this way, there's no way in which a man can earn a star or deserve a sunset even as things are hard for us right now. Can you see the sunset? Can you see the stars? Can you see the things that God has given you? Can you find contentment even in this place? Don't look to others. Look to Christ. 
if you don't believe Paul or even Solomon who echoed a similar thought, maybe you'll believe Madonna, who is arguably one of the most famous people of our lifetime. She said in an interview several years ago, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove to somebody that I'm a somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. Now, if you, at the end of this live stream, dedicated your entire life to being famous and a star in some sort of arena, and it's likely, even if you worked incredibly hard, you wouldn't be as famous as Madonna. She's one of those rare people who is known by only one name. But she says, let me save you the time. I've done some pretty important and significant stuff. I've done some things that people have praised. I've done some things that have had a lot of fans. I've done some really big shows. And even for me, it's never quite enough. She very much sounds like Paul. He said the secret to life is understanding what enough actually is. One way that I think we could diagnose this in ourselves is in the book of Romans, it says to rejoice when other people rejoice. Can you do that? How good are you when somebody who's in your field, somebody who perhaps you're somewhat competing with, how good are you in saying congratulations on that and actually meaning it? Wow, that was a really good job. I'm glad that you got that position. I'm glad that worked out for you. I think something that we could also watch in ourselves in, is cynicism and, and critical thoughts and behaviors. A mentor of mine once said to me that he recognized that the people who he wanted to be the most were the least cynical and critical people that he knew. We sometimes think that knowledge is becoming more critical and cynical and standing back and being able to critique things. But in reality, the people who are living their best lives are people who aren't constantly cutting people down because actually that's a sign of envy. That you're looking at somebody and not really thinking, oh, they deserve that, but looking to try and cut them down and say, no, this is the reason why they don't deserve it. May we hear the words of Paul who says, the mega mystery to life is understanding what contentment can truly bring us. G.K. Chesterton said this as well. There are two ways to get enough. One is to continue to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. Do you want to live on a treadmill forever, just accumulating more and more and more? What if you could desire less? I think that's one of the gifts that this season has to give us. Again, it's hard for a lot of people. But haven't you in, in some moments realized that there's a bit of happiness in this simplicity? That we were all defining ourselves by how busy we were and running and running and running and being able to stand back and look at our lives a bit 
we realize that perhaps I had enough. I never really realized it. I think we often think that we know what we want and we know what's best for us. But in the Old Testament, God gives people exactly what they want. And when God does that, it's usually the worst thing for them. One of the reasons why I think self-limiting and recognizing when enough is enough is so important is we are broken people. We think we know what we need. We think we know what our desires are and what is truly most important. But we are broken vessels. We're going to sing that song now. I'm so thankful to Philip and Gabrielle for putting this together so we could recognize that we are all broken vessels, that we need the grace of God to come onto us again and again and to let that grace be enough. May we not look to the right or to the left. May we recognize that sometimes the desires that we have in our heart are broken. And we need at times to limit ourselves and say right here, yeah, this is enough and I am loved by God. Because contentment is the mega mystery. Leave envy behind. Recognize that we all are broken vessels. May we live with open hands to not be in competition with everybody that we meet, but to see others not as something that we're competing against, but as people created in the image of God. Let's rejoice with them when we can and try as best we can to not live critical and cynical, but to allow God's contentment to be deep in our hearts.